Have you ever been weird? Like, I don't know, maybe you were shy in college, or, or you didn't go to college and everybody else did, or, or you went to college and nobody else in your community did, or you grew up poor in an area where a lot of your friends in school had money, or you grew up wealthy when a lot of your friends didn't have money. Uh, my, we grew up poor, and uh, my mom has always been a big yard seller, uh, like always, and when I was a kid, when I was like 11 years old, the thing I wanted more than anything else was Reebok pumps. Do y'all remember those? Yeah, I mean, they were like it. Shaquille O'Neal endorsed them. He wore them. Uh, I'm not sure he actually wore the actual shoe because those things would explode. Um, but like, you remember you, you, the tongue had like this pump and you would pump it up and it would like Titan. I mean, it was just great. Mine exploded really. But I, I wanted those so bad and we couldn't get them because they cost like a lot of money. But my mom went to a yard sale where a guy who had a shoe store was closing down and he was selling Reebok pumps. It was like this amazing thing. The only caveat, he only had one shoe. Like... And but he had different sizes, and he could I could get Reebok pumps, and that plural was important. I could get two Reebok pumps if I was okay wearing two totally different colors. And it wasn't like colors that were close to each other. One was bright orange, and the other was neon green. And so that's what I wore for like a year and a half. And everywhere I went, you know, you noticed when I was wanting the Reebok pumps, it was so I could show them off for like status. And apparently I think it would make me play like Shaquille O'Neal because my game has mostly been above the rim. But (laughs) instead, when I get this, it's like for all intents and purposes, they're Reebok pumps. But you don't necessarily want everybody else noticing that you're wearing them because I was around wealthy kids. I mean, they had the finer things in life, like matching shoes. (laughs) So, being weird is hard. Standing out is hard. It's part of the human condition we want to fit in, right? But when normal is what normal is, it's time to be weird. When what passes as normal in our world today is greed and materialism and violence and selfishness and racism and power-mongering, we're called to be different. And the church's task is not to create a counterculture as much as it is to receive the identity that God has given us that is as ancient as Jesus. And when it's discovered, it looks freshly minted. So we're beginning a series that's going to run for the next few weeks called Jesus 101. And the reason it's called Jesus 101 is because I think all too often, especially in America, what we do is we jump on to 201, 301, advanced stuff. I mean, there are people in this room today who know Greek. But statistically at a population level speaking, Christians in America are not thriving we're a lot like everybody else in a world where everybody else looks like what I just said. There's not very much difference between us. And I think part of the reason is 
we missed the very entry point of what it means to follow Jesus. Because here's what Jesus does. When he's going to change the world, when he's going to do what he's done in human history, he gets 12 guys and they go camping and hiking and they eat together and they share life together. They live life on life. And, and Jesus allows them to air their opinions and he corrects their opinions sometimes. They have these deep conversations. And what he's doing in that moment is what he will later tell us is called making disciples. People who can live their lives as if he was living that life. And that is the very basic entry point for following Jesus. I've, I've been thinking about this for a while. I've asked a lot of us, has anybody ever discipled you? And one of the things that comes back when you say that is, well, what does that mean? I've been in a lot of Bible classes. I've been in a lot of you know, small groups. I've gone to Starbucks with an open Bible with someone else. Is that, is that what you're talking about? No. Because, and I, I love Bible classes, I love small groups, I think those are really important things. Maybe even 201, 301 things. But, you're, as a, if you're in a Bible class right now, we're going through making disciples. We're talking about the thing. Just know, talking about the thing is not the thing. Following Jesus, and this, this is what he says at the end of his uh, time on earth, as he's being ascended into the heavens, he says, All authority has been given to me. Now go and make do for others what I have done for you. Amen. Make disciples, people who know how to live their life as if I was living it. And to do that, to live under the authority of King Jesus, is going to require some kind of modest courage. It's going to require people who are willing to obey, especially when they don't want to. Okay. It's going to require us being willing to be different. And to show you what I'm talking about today, I want to take you to a Bible story that even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably are familiar with. Um, because I think it uh, encapsulates this big idea that you start with when you're learning how to be discipled, which is obedience. Not obedience to me. Not obedience to, you know, the person who's discipling you. Obedience to Jesus as Lord and King. So, when, uh, I, a few years ago, I was preaching in, in L.A. And one of my buddies at the church there uh, worked for Paramount. And I asked him how life was going. He said, it's really bad right now. Because I'm getting lit up by Christians for the project I'm working on. He was working on a movie about something based on a Bible story. And the movie hadn't even come out yet, and they were like uh, arguing with him about not making the movie. Because it turns out Christians have this bad habit of reviewing things they haven't seen or read. Any idea what the movie was? Noah. It was the movie of Noah. And Christians were upset because they were like, what if they get it wrong? And I was like, what if they get it right? I'm worried about that. Because the story of Noah is not the story we think it is. Which, by the way, we don't think that much about. Do you know half of Americans don't know Genesis is the first book of the Bible? Do you know that 15% of Americans think that Joan of Arc is Noah's wife? <laughs> That's a real thing. That Whoever thought that up is pretty genius. But uh, 
I'm not concerned that they got it wrong when it came, the movie came out. I wasn't concerned that they would get it wrong. I was concerned, what if they get it right? Because it's this incredibly dark story of a God who takes human agency and evil seriously. Um, all the ancient kind of ways of talking about reality, the ancient religions, had flood stories. But this one is different. The other flood stories, um, they, you know... Uh, well, I'll get into that. The other flood stories didn't talk about the heart of the God who was sending this flood. This is a God who is grieved by the evil that human beings are doing to one another. And so he sends a flood. He's going to deal with the evil. He takes Noah and his family and rescues them to deal with evil. They're going to repopulate the earth. But at the end of the flood story, you find out it didn't work. Because the evil that they were trying to deal with, Noah brought with him. Noah, at the end of the story, he winds up getting drunk and naked and he wakes up cursing his family. It's like the ark washed up on the Jersey Shore or something. (laughs) Um, And ultimately God says, I'm not going to do that again. Because it didn't work. We like to think that the Noah story, and by the way, if your recent familiarity with the Noah story is like reading it to a kid in the children's Bible, they edited out a lot of that. We like to think it's a children's story because it has like animals and a floating zoo or whatever, but it's actually pretty, it's pretty dark. So for us modern Western readers, it's really disturbing, but... I'd like to consider you to consider it from another vantage point. Leslie and I have been to Auschwitz, the biggest concentration camp that there was. And we've seen the evil that human beings can do to other people. I've been to Washington, D.C. a few times, and I've taken Eden and Samuel, our oldest two, to the Holocaust Museum. And in the Holocaust Museum, there are these exhibits that you can uh, see the worst things that humans have done to each other in the last hundred years. But there's also a little wall about this high. It's a safety feature. It keeps toddlers from being able to see. If you want to see the worst things that human beings can do to one another, you have to be over tall enough to see over the wall. And does it surprise you to know That the Jews in the concentration camp, one of the main stories they told each other over and over again as they were having this inflicted on them, was the story of Noah. Because here's a story about a God who is watching. Here's a story about a God who sees. A God who's paying attention and is going to not just turn a blind eye to the evil that's in the world. That God will intervene Not only for me, but sometimes to me. That God, when I do evil, when I hurt people, stands against me. And that this God is not asleep. He's not apathetic. He cares. He's watching. And He will act. These stories gave them hope. They didn't... The Jewish people in that time did not feel the need to defend God's actions. They were encouraged by them. We modern Westerners sit in our air-conditioned rooms with our pews and we ask, what kind of God would do this? They would ask, what kind of God would not do this? We, we modern Western people, we, we look down on God from our you know, privileged 
point of view. And Genesis is going to say, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. In fact, the story of the flood opens up with letting us see things the way God does. So in Genesis chapter 6, this is what it says. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Unlike the other ancient world religions, like one of, one of the ancient flood stories from another, world, uh, another religion said that the gods flooded the earth because human beings were being too loud and they got woken up from their nap. Which always makes me think those ancient religions were like started by parents. <laughs> Another one said that the gods saw that the earth was becoming too populated. And so they sent the flood because they were trying to like Thanos and the Avengers, you know, wipe out half the population. But this is a different kind of story. This is a different kind of God. This is a God who has a heart who is bothered by human sin. And one of the, play, one of the ways religious people in particular um, go off the, tra- the track is when we hear words like sin, we think abstract, like I thought a dirty thought or something. But real sin is never abstract. Real sin causes actual harm to someone. And maybe you're the someone, but it always invites evil into God's good world. This is a different story about a God who's paying attention, a God who cares, and a God who regrets that so much evil is happening in His good world. And as troubling as it might be for God to punish evil, how much more troubling would it be if He didn't? There's a guy named Mirosoff Volf who uh, is a great theologian. He survived a genocide, but a lot of his family was killed, a genocide that happened in Croatia. And then he came to the States as a professor at Yale, and he started to listen to the ideas of how Christians in America talk about God and God's justice. And he said, the idea that there is no hell could only come from the American suburbs. Because when you don't constantly see the evil that is actually in the world, it's easy to start thinking, human beings, we're okay. Sometimes we're a little naughty. And Volf, who's seen the worst that humans can do to one another, said, it is good news that a God is watching and cares and will do something about it. So here's what Genesis says. Because the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, God saw how corrupt the earth has become. This is repeated over and over in this story. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Another translation says, it's ruined And God does something about it. He will not let evil go unchecked in His good world. So the word that's used is literally blot out. We have a God who will not let evil stain His world that He called good forever. But even in the middle of that, it's not all bad. There is Noah. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So one of the first things we learn about Noah is he's got three sons. Wow, that must be rough. Pray for Noah. But we, we find out that Noah is faithful, at least relatively faithful, to the people of his corrupt time. Um, I've told you all before, one of the things I love is doing funerals. 
I don't love that someone has to die to do the funeral, but I do love doing funerals because it's like all the noise of life kind of fades away. In the funeral, we reach for the words that really matter. We don't talk about how busy they were, how important they were, how much money they had. Instead, we reach for words like kind. We reach for words like faithful and loyal and righteous. And this is how Noah is described. And here's what I know about you. Deep in your heart, you don't want to have a life defined by a bank account. Deep in your heart, you don't want to have a life defined by your status. You want one of those bigger, better words to define your time on this earth. And I think thinking of this, one of the things church can do on a regular basis is just help you reorient your life to what really matters. I mean, Noah lives in a terrible world where everyone's thoughts are evil all the time. He lives in a world where everything is corrupted and ruined, and he's not raging against the machine. He's not fighting. He's not constantly posting on social media or whatever. He's quietly, righteously, and faithfully walking before God. And quietly may be the key word there. Because Noah actually doesn't even say anything until after the flood. He's just quietly obeying God. I mean, he's not a big deal. He's, he doesn't have a blog. He's not even written a book. He just faithfully, obediently does what God told him to do. And this phrase is repeated over and over in the story of Noah. This is what it looks like. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He builds a boat, fills it with animals, survives a storm, sends out a, you know, some birds. He does that without saying a word. Now, here's what's interesting about the story of Noah. Because Israel, the people of God, they would often disobey God. And because of that, they would be sent into exile. God would allow like Assyria or Babylon to capture them for like 70 to 100, 200 years. And they would live under the cruel hand of a foreign empire. Sometimes they would be turned into slaves. Sometimes they would be... They had a cruel, miserable day-to-day life. And one of the biggest stories they reached for during those hard, hard times was this one. About God who's going to act and how it won't always be this way. That God is deeply troubled by the wrongs of this world and He will make them right. He won't just say, it's not a big deal Don't worry about it. No, evil is a big deal and it will be judged. But while you are waiting on that, you can live this way. You can be blameless. You can be faithful. And you don't have to have a fancy degree to do it. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to do it. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You can be righteous. You can be blameless. You can walk with God while you wait for Him to be just. And He will be. Because He is. Now, it is easy to read the story of Noah on this side of boat construction and think, oh, that's such a cute Bible story. But think about what it would have been like day to day for Noah. Uh, have, you, have you ever like, met somebody who's like QAnon adjacent and you're, like, you don't know it at first and then all of a sudden you, know, like, you see them like, posting about lizard people or something on Facebook or, 
Or maybe they don't believe the moon landing, which I believe I know a few people here who don't believe the moon landing. But anyway, whatever it is, whatever the thing is, uh, and, and you meet them or they just got hired at your work, and you're like, oh, they're going to make the work party super weird. Noah is weird on a different level than that. Like at first, people don't notice when the boat is like low to the ground. But over time, his homeowners association started having some complaints. I mean, for decades, Noah gets up and believes the craziest thing possible. And think about the decision-making process that Noah has to go through. Think about all the second guessing, because here's what he's doing. He is responding to a God who's giving him a vision for the future that no one else sees. And for years, he has committed to obeying faithfully and quietly. And I like Noah's story as an example of what we're called to do, which is to live counterculturally in our world, quietly, faithfully, and blamelessly. This is such an archetype of that, that the Bible often will call back to the story of Noah. Like in the letter to the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews actually uses Noah as an example of what it looks like to live in the world quietly and faithfully. And this is how it says it. By faith, Noah, who when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heirs of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. With faith, Noah prepared for a long, long time. Now, comedians have had a field day with this from Bill Meyer to, you know, Ricky Gervais to John Christ. But my favorite is the disgraced comedian Bill Cosby. How many of y'all have heard his bit on Noah? Yeah, it's super funny. Bill Cosby, this was decades ago, he uh, acted out Noah getting the call from God. You know, build the giant boat. And Noah is basically saying to God, uh, <clears throat> hey God, just some updates on the boat. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the only one in my neighborhood with an ark. Uh, and God, I don't know if you've seen what the animals are doing to the floor of this boat. I love that way of framing it. I'm the only one in my neighborhood with an ark. I'm different. And different is hard. Now, I know I'm talking to modern Western people. And I don't know what you think about the idea of a worldwide flood. But I can tell you this. It seems to be Jesus believe this story. And I tend to roll with him. Anybody who can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm going to trust what they think. And Jesus actually referred to Noah's story as a way to get people to consider their lives now in relation to the world that is coming, to the God who is going to judge and set things right. Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 24. He's pointing not just to the present, but what God was going to do in the future. And in Matthew chapter 24, he says, about that day, the someday that we just sang about, about that day, no one knows when it's going to happen. Not the angels, nor me, the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, people didn't know a storm was coming. 
And Noah's faithful obedience to what seems impossible at the time when the storm came proved to be the only wise choice there was. So if you're new to church, there are four stories of Jesus in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospel of Matthew for the first hundred years was the most popular of all those Gospels because it had more face time with Jesus than any other Gospel. There's more red letters with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And more than that, the Gospel of Matthew was seen as kind of a manual of discipleship for people who are wanting to follow Jesus. You can see the things that Jesus says. This is how to obey. This is how to live. Um, and right at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus starts off his ministry by giving what we call today the Sermon on the Mount. But the day it happened, it was just the sermon. And it's a sermon that starts off with the words happy or blessed. It's, it's a way to live a, a life that has lots of joy, a life that is aware constantly of the presence of God. It, it's a way to live that is, uh, you know, how to, how to think about your relationship to women, how to think about money, how to think about words, how to think about not using people. I mean, it's, it's a way of life. It's not a religious system, it's a way of life. Michael Keck, who's one of our shepherds, uh, is also a politician, and he says, and he's right, by the way, historians agree with him, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' stump speech. Which means, everywhere that Jesus went, when he was going to give his sermon, this was what he would give. When you read in the Gospels that Jesus went to a place and started preaching about the kingdom of God, that's what this is. This is how to live life in a different kingdom. This is how to live a different kind of life. And the Sermon on the Mount is not about how to vote. It's not about how to get rich or how to be religious. It's how to live fundamentally different in light of who God is and where human history is headed. And Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount like this. Therefore... Anyone who hears these words of mine, and let's all read that sentence together, and puts them into practice. Not anyone who hears these words of mine and goes and studies the Greek. Not anyone who hears these words of mine and tries to do a deep dive on the Bible study. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and it beat against that house and yet it did not fail because it had its foundation on the rock. This is how Jesus is the kind of person who sleeps on a boat in the middle of the storm. But anyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a, wise, a foolish person who builds their house on sand. And when that same storm comes, when the rains come down, when the streams rise and the winds blow and beat against that house, it falls with a great crash. I think Jesus might be giving a wink here to the obedience of Noah. Because it wouldn't have been enough for Noah to be like, you know what, I intellectually believe God can send a flood. Or for him to campaign for flood-related causes. No, he had to get up each day and prepare for the kind of future that God was going to send. So on March 31st, tornado hits West Little Rock, destroys a couple thousand homes, some of our homes. And then Wednesday, 
We have this like micro storm that comes out of nowhere with 70 to 80 mile an hour straight winds. Did so much damage to this building and our parking lot and it was crazy. And on Wednesday during the storm, I was like, what is, oh, so we, you know, our staff started being like, does any of us have unrepented sin or something? <laughs> but here's the thing about storms. You don't know when they're coming. There's something about storms that makes me realize how out of control life is for me. I don't know, maybe you're like me. You think if you got enough money in the bank or if you, you know, plan far enough ahead, you think you know where your life's going to go. And there's something about storms that kind of help you have perspective of what reality really is. That we really don't have control, that we're really pretty small in the grand scheme of things. And Jesus knows that. And he's trying to give us storm advice. He's saying, look, you can become the kind of man or woman who can face whatever tomorrow brings. You can build a life that can last whatever storm it is you're going through. Now, here's where I need to address those of us who grew up in churches of Christ, like me. Because when I was growing up, I heard this sermon, uh, this story preached a certain way, and it undermined, I think, some very big things of the discipleship of Jesus. One is grace, but the second is the kind of obedience Jesus wants. Okay, so let me do this. How, how many of y'all can tell me, what kind of wood did God tell Noah to build the ark with? Just shout it out. Gopher wood! Anybody got a gopher tree in their backyard? At harvest time, did the little gophers just fall off? Okay, let me show you where that came from. That's King James Version. This is Genesis 6, King James. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shall thou make it in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without, without pitch. Okay. What is gopher wood? Anybody know? Back in the day when I was hearing this, it was preached to me that if Noah didn't use gopher wood, if he would have used pine or oak or something like that, what would the ark have done? Sank! Yeah, you can't... You can't use the wrong wood. Okay, now let me show you that exact same verse you just read, but not in the King James Version. This is, I think, probably most of your translations. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Those liberal translators getting rid of gophers. (laughs) Cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. What are you talking about? Okay, in your Bible, the one you have in your lap, there's a footnote there. And that footnote says, we don't know what gopher wood is. We never did. That's a King James thing. Uh, they used that word. And I guess somebody liked gophers or something. And Anyway, we never knew what it was. And their best guess, this is scholar's best guess of what gopher wood is. It's a shape of wood. Not a kind of wood. A shape like beams, right? And <laughs> this is scholar's best guess. That it was probably made from pine. Which is the very stuff I was told growing up. It would sink the ark if you used it. And anyway, all that to say, one of the ways Christianity goes off the rails is by trying to focus on precision obedience rather than just obedience. And and the reason that's tempting to humans is because precision obedience, well, that comes with a little pride, doesn't it? You can look to your left and your right, and they're just not quite as precise as I am. And let me tell you what happens in the danger of that. Because I've seen this for 20 years. 
Once we throw off legalism, because we're not like that. We realize God's grace is sufficient. We don't have anything to do with that. God is a God of grace and mercy. We react against a false gospel of precision obedience. You know, the, the idea that, you know, we used to have of, I haven't done enough, I haven't done it accurately, I hope we get church right today. We react against that and throw obedience out the window to our peril. Because to quote the great theology from the dark night, a storm is coming, Mr. Wayne. Do you know how the greatest thinkers in Christian history read this story? You know the dimensions of the ark that is given? People like Augustine and even Aquinas said that those dimensions are also the dimensions of a person lying down. That the ark, they said, the true ark, the one that the ark was a shadow pointing towards, was Jesus. Augustine in his book, The City of God, is trying to tell the Roman world, who is blaming Christians right now, for the fall of Rome because the Christians didn't worship the Roman gods and it's all their fault. And he writes this epic book that's basically saying these things. There are two cities. The city of man that is founded around the love of self. And in the middle of that same city kind of overlapping and within, is a totally different way of being human. He calls it the city of God, where its citizens, their fundamental orientation is not love of self, but love of God. Because the story of Noah is really a story about Jesus. We receive this life, this identity, this grace, and we obey. Because we love God first, not ourselves. And in a world tossing on the waves of the mighty ocean of the city of man, we are called to follow Jesus and sometimes build an ark even when it's not raining. The name that ark is given is church, and the people who make it up are disciples. Because storms always come. We start building a life that can last. I don't know how many of y'all have seen the Netflix show Quarterback. I don't always use football illustrations, but it's the first day of the NFL. And um, a few months ago, Quarterback comes out on Netflix. It's not a Christian show. It's uh, following these three NFL quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes, Marcus Mariota, and Kirk Cousins. Um, And it shows you their practice, their games, but also their lives, their families. And it's epic. We have this thing that helps us to edit out cuss words. So I let my boys watch it because they love football, like unhealthily so. But we watched it. And originally, Kirk Cousins was my least favorite of those quarterbacks because he's like so vanilla. He's so bland. In fact, during the, during the show, they were talking about some of the social media posts. He would get up at press conferences, his wife would dress him, and people would tweet stuff like, look at that guy, you know he's rolling in Cole's cash because he's so bland. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's a slow burn, but it's great, great. Uh, and the guy is actually a devout follower of Jesus. I didn't know that. And... They had a great year, one of the best years in recent Vikings history. He's a quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. They they won 13 games. 
And people were talking about, they're going to go deep in the playoffs this year. They're, they're going to maybe even win it all this year. And then, in the very first playoff game, they lost to their rivals, the New York Giants. And I want you to think, I know we're not professional football players, but I want you to think, if you're the quarterback, and all this expectation and hype was around, and you let down not just your team, but your city and your state, how would you respond? And so this non-Christian show, this is Netflix, this is not like the 700 Club, shows Kirk Cousins immediately after what was probably the hardest day of his professional life. And this is what they showed. If you could play that clip. I'm probably missing one, but this is probably the toughest loss I've had in my career. So it hurts. You know, we'll uh, keep working and I uh, will continue to have the goal that someday I'm standing here talking to you all and it's a much, much bigger stage. So thank you. All righty. It's usually about this time when you start feeling all the pains from the game. You just walk around your house and you're like, ooh, that hurts. Turner, that was awesome. The fact that you let Cooper go to the game in your place. That was so nice of you. That was so nice of you. Wow, so you stayed home and watched the game with Mimi? Yeah. Did you know if we won or lost? We won. No, we lost. Yeah, we lost 24-31. You want to go read with Dad? No, Let's go read we, some books. We got 24 and the other kids got 31. That's why we lost. Can we do that? Can we read some books? Okay. You comfy? Mm-hmm. All right, you should sleep well tonight because you didn't get a great nap and it's 9 o'clock. All righty. Ready to sing and pray? On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand Jesus, thanks for uh, today. Thanks for protecting Dad in his football game and through this football season. Um, thanks that Cooper was able to be there tonight and watch. And um, thanks for Mommy and for Turner, for the great family we have. And God, we uh, continue to just give the days ahead to you and trust you for uh, what's up ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, buddy, you good? Okay. Sleep well. Love you. There is a way to live that can survive any storm. But church... We have to actually follow Jesus to do this. It's not about what we know in our heads intellectually. It's about actually putting his words into practice. To allow Jesus to actually be our king and obey him even when we don't want to. Especially when we don't want to. Because normal isn't working for anyone. Today is the day to start building a life that can last. So one of the ways we do that is we gather every week together with people we are learning to love well. 
and we receive the body and blood of Jesus as a way of his presence with us. He gives us not just some ritual, but himself. And he teaches us to receive the grace that is his life every week. And so we do. On the pew beside you or in front of you, there are these emblems. One is with bread and the other is with juice. And we're going to pray over this and then receive the body and blood of Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this life that you have given us. Thank you for giving us your life. As we receive this body and blood, this bread and cup, we are reminded of your sacrifice for us. We're reminded of your great love for us. We're reminded that we can trust you, that your nature is really, really good, that you laid down your life for us so that we may have your life to share. And so, Father, please bless this bread and this cup as we receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. The body of Christ broken for you. blood of Christ shed for you.